Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coral reefs around the world are vanishing at an unprecedented rate. We've lost 50% of the world's coral in the last 30 years. Scientists say that climate change is now their greatest threat. It's estimated that uh, without changes, only 10% can survive uh, past 2050. In a new documentary film, Chasing Coral, a team of divers, photographers, and scientists set out on a thrilling ocean adventure to discover why coral are vanishing and to reveal the underwater mystery to the world and what can be done. We are going to spend the hour with Zach Rago, underwater photographer, self-described coral nerd. He's uh, prominently featured in Chasing uh, Coral. Uh, Zach Rago, thanks for joining us. No, thank you guys for having me, Tom. I'm excited. Uh, I should say that on Twitter, it's at Coral Buff. So uh, Coral, uh, very important uh, to you. Um, and you're from Colorado, right? Yes, sir. Grew up just outside the Denver area. So how how did, uh, that's an unusual journey, uh, from Colorado, landlocked state, to the oceans. How did that happen? Yeah, I was um, I was quite lucky growing up. My uh, my parents are both educators, actually, and, and my father runs a program where he takes about forty high school students out to the Big Island of Hawaii for uh, a marine biology course. So young Zach, at you know six years old or so, was um, able to kind of shadow kids and, and get involved with learning about the ocean, and I fell in love with it. And one way or another, I, I continued to get opportunities to allow myself to, to work in a place that I really enjoy. So a lot of it was luck and, and kind of being in the right place at the right time, I suppose. Mm. How did you get involved in the Chasing Coral Project? Yeah, so um, I actually, so it's so funny because I was really never supposed to be in the film. Um, when I got out of college, I, I took a job with a company called View Into the Blue, who um, develops and designs underwater cameras. And the cool thing about them is they actually self-clean. So a huge issue when you're working in a marine environment is something that we call biofouling or essentially things getting really dirty really quickly. Um, so our technology allowed for these camera systems to stay clean throughout the production of the film and allowed for us to kind of pursue this um, visualization of a issue or a phenomenon using time-lapse photography. So I worked on those camera systems and was hired to simply put them in the water and, and ensure that they work. Um, and if you've seen the film, you know that it wasn't that simple, but that's actually how I got involved. And for one reason or another, um, they, they enjoyed my story and my passion for coral reefs. And I ended up being a, a much larger part of the film than I ever expected. So you were involved in the company and then uh, got involved in the underwater photography. Well, I guess what they didn't know, they found out, is you you have a passion for coral reefs. That's right. They uh, definitely didn't see that one coming. Threw them a little curveball. <laughs> so uh, where did that start? How did that, how did that uh, I guess you, you didn't immediately jump into the ocean. Uh, that's, that started in Colorado, did it? How, how did you uh, come to love coral? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I think through my experiences, both with my father's program and, and being lucky enough to have experienced the ocean um, from a pretty young age, um, I actually got involved with aquariums at um, probably 12 years old or so, and um, actually did that for a living throughout high school and, and throughout college, um, and, and got pretty good at taking care of corals in an aquaria setting. Um, so I was fascinated by them, and they, they were certainly... Um, you know, kind of my infatuation growing up, and um, I, I got to know them quite well and, and was quite interested in their taxonomy. So it was these experiences of kind of running a, a coral growing operation, you could say, um, that ultimately led to me building a, a knowledge of them and, and falling in love with their biology. And um, yeah, they, they just kind of were my thing. I think we all sort of have that passion for something that we enjoy or something that absolutely gets them going and, and they just can't stop wanting to learn more. So um, it was the aquarium industry that actually got me really involved in, in corals in particular. In the film, uh, I think somebody comments that, okay, Zach's got this aquarium with coral. <laughs> Some people have coral in their aquarium and then they got the fish. But you, uh, <laughs> you had coral, coral and coral, just coral. Yeah, um, you know, I have a couple different reasons for doing that, um, but I think the 
the actual reason behind it rather than me disliking fish and only liking coral um, is actually because corals are, are creatures that live in a very precise environment. Um, and when you have a closed system like an aquarium, the addition of fish and whatnot um, you know, creates some other moving variables that sometimes can be more or less out of your control. So Corals live in very shallow seas. Um, they, they need very low nutrient water. Um, and when you introduce a fish into an aquarium, um, they create waste just like any other animal. So by not having fish in my tanks, um, you can actually take care of the coral with a little bit more ease than you might be able to with a full-on fish and coral reef aquarium. Um, so while I do love my corals a little bit more than my fish, um, it was usually just looking out for the coral's best interests and um, ensuring that they're the best and most healthy possible organisms that they can be. If you just joined us, we're talking with Zach Rago. He is pro- featured prominently in the new film, Chasing Coral. You can find that on Netflix. And uh, it uh, highlights uh, one of the big problems in the world. Uh, we're losing uh, coral at an unprecedented rate. Coral, as we'll hear as we go along, very important to the ecosystem. Um, I want to play a clip, a sound clip from the film. We'll hear in this uh, sound clip, it's two or three minutes. This is uh, coral scientist Ruth Gates explaining uh, what uh, some people might be wondering. I did when uh, going in, and this is uh, clip number two. Um, She explains what are corals. Here's uh, Ruth Gates. I get completely overwhelmed sometimes underwater on a reef because I can't believe that these structures are just so created by these simple organisms or seemingly simple organisms. I have the utmost respect for corals because I think they've got us all fooled. Simplicity on the outside doesn't mean simplicity on the inside. We think we're really evolved because we're highly complex beings. We can do lots of things. We have opposing thumbs. But corals, they've decided, forget the external complexity. Let's just be really sophisticated in a quiet way. A coral individual is really made up of thousands of small structures called polyps. Each polyp is a circular mouth surrounded by tentacles, and they can combine to be millions of them across a single animal. They have inside their tissues small plants, these microalgae, a million per centimeter squared. The plants that live inside them photosynthesize, and the animal uses that for their food. They essentially have food factories living inside of themselves. So as the animal grows, what you see is the animal is growing over the skeleton and depositing the skeleton underneath it. They photosynthesize during the day. At night, the plants really essentially sleep and the animal comes active. They expand their polyps, the tentacles come out. And now anything that swims by is caught by these stinging cells that are on the tips of the tentacles. There are many different species of corals and the different species of corals are different shapes. Some are very boring to look at. They look like big rocks on the bottom. Some are incredibly beautiful to look at. They have huge, huge branching patterns or massive plates. Some of them look like petals of a flower. These are foundation species. They have all these other organisms that depend on them. They are the reason we have reefs. A consortium of organisms that cooperate together that now manifests in this massive structure that can be seen from space. That's a sound clip from the film Chasing Coral, which can be found on Netflix. We're talking with Zach Rago, featured prominently in the film. Uh, so, Zach Rigo, that uh, was an explanation of what corals are. Um, I wonder, uh, uh, in the film, you talk about how you like to study uh, symbiosis, right? And th- this is a 
spectacular example. Yeah, for me, it's it's the deepest example. So when we think of symbiosis, many a time we think of something as simple as the bees pollinating the flowers or Nemo hanging out in his anemone. They are the relationships in which two separate organisms are benefiting each other. In the case of a coral, it, it can even um, you can look at it as a much deeper relationship because you don't really have one without the other. Um, the coral is completely dependent on this algae that lives inside of its tissue, and that algae provides the necessary energy for that coral to be successful in the ecosystem. And without that energy, they can't actually build their skeleton. So in this funny way, corals can be almost looked at as an animal with a algae in itself that produces a rock. Um, it really is this intertwined relationship that, you know, we're only beginning to scratch the surface of that really in-depth genetic relationship that they hold with each other. Um, and for me, it's certainly one of the most fascinating things in the natural world. It is a um, a system that has been perfected over hundreds of millions of years, and, and they are rather efficient at, at surviving in, you know, what for most life is a, a pretty pre- precarious scenario for them. Um, they've developed an ability to flourish in an ecosystem that now provides 25% of all life in the ocean. So um, not only are they unbelievably effective at what they do, but they do so in a, in a way that really isn't comparable to a whole lot of other relationships that we know of. So um, it, it's an unbelievably fascinating world when, when you get into the nitty-gritty of the biology that's going on within these creatures. We uh, sometimes we think the either the reef is the rock, right? Sometimes we just think, well, coral is this dead thing. It's it's uh, it's, it's it's this rock-like thing. That's the skeleton, but uh, it it really is a, a living living organism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the case of the Great Barrier Reef and even some of the other larger reefs on our planet. It's um, it's a living structure that can be seen from space. Um, it truly is one of the largest structures ever created by life on the planet. Um, and from above, even in that scenario, they can simply look like just structure on the bottom, right? And it is funny because in the scientific community, a lot of the times that structure is referred to as just the reef. So it, it becomes almost convoluted for the average person to understand that um, these areas are absolutely flourishing with life. And at the foundation of all of that diversity are these very simple and stationary creatures um, called corals that, that simply live on the bottom. Uh, stationary. Uh, I want to get into talking about that in the next segment after break. And talk about bleaching. Have you explained what bleaching is, why it's such a problem? And, of course, the, the film is trying to document in a visual and striking way uh, coral before and after bleaching events. So we've had increasing numbers of bleaching events. Uh, because one of the questions is people say, well, can't coral just move to a <laughs> cooler climate? Um, so stationary is the key word there. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about bleaching, which is happening at an increasing rate, and why, and uh, what the stakes are. More with Zach Rigo. The film is Chasing Coral, following this break. Anna Cohen uses pulsed lasers to map ancient cities. David Geller works to identify space junk to prevent catastrophes in orbit. Together, we're going to be talking about what drives people to search for things they can't see and how to best encourage young people to explore scientific careers. The Anthropologist and the Aerospace Engineer on Undisciplined, Friday at 2. Hi, I'm Madeline Mortensen, a news reporter at Utah Public Radio. At UVR, we are dedicated to bringing you stories about the things happening in your community. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. 
You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to use the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new film, a documentary film called Chasing Coral. A team of divers, photographers, and scientists in this film set out on an ocean adventure to discover why coral are vanishing at an unprecedented rate. Uh, we've uh, lost 50% of the world's coral in the last 30 years, and predictions are dire if uh, things continue on the current trajectory. Um, bleaching is uh, one of the uh, one of the phenomena, one of the problems we have with us. Zach Rago, underwater photographer, and uh, he's prominently featured in uh, Chasing Coral. So, Zach Rago, um, we hear this word bleaching. Um, tell us about this. What's what's happening, and and why? Yeah, so at the core of the film was this desire for us to go out and take time lapse of something that could be visually representative of climate change. Um, so what what happens with corals is, is uh, fascinating from a biological standpoint, but absolutely terrifying when you think of it from the kind of ecosystem level for the corals themselves and the things that rely on them. So we, we previously talked about um, this inherent symbiotic relationship that these corals hold with an algae that actually provides the coral its energy. Um, when you look at a coral or when somebody thinks of a coral reef, we think of these beautiful um, colors and magnificent structures as far as the eye can see. And the colors that you're actually seeing in those corals are the little algae that's within their tissue. When those algae get put into warmer waters than they're used to, they actually begin to misfunction. They're misbehaving when they get into that warmer um, climate. So their photosynthesis that is providing nearly 80 to 90% of their energy is no longer working. And instead of producing, you know, usable energy for that coral, they actually begin to produce some pretty nasty molecules. We call them reactive oxygen species. Now, these are really bad for your cells. It can cause your cell to essentially um, freak out and kind of die. You could think of it that way. Um, so the coral actually, um, as a defense mechanism, has to make a decision. It, it says, well, I have an algae inside of me that's producing these really nasty molecules. I need to get rid of them or else they're going to kill me. So what's so fascinating is while bleaching is incredibly bad, um, the phenomenon itself is, is a survival mechanism. It's a way for the corals to um, you know, have a last-ditch effort in order to protect themselves from this heat wave that's happening in our oceans. And in turn, they expel all of those algae that are living in their, in their tissue. And what you get left with is the blank coral tissue. It's just transparent tissue over the skeleton that they've been building. And so you can see the stark white calcium carbonate skeleton underneath this tissue. And that's where you get the term bleaching because all of the corals that are going through this process look bleach white because all you can see is their skeleton. And if this temperature stays above normal for too long, these corals without their main energy source can essentially starve to death in the long term. They're no longer producing what they need to build their skeletons and survive. And given a month or two, depending on the species, that coral can ultimately die because of the heat and because of their lack of symbiotic algae. Um, right, yeah, so I guess if it's a, just a very temporary uh, thing, that the, the coral could survive bleaching, but over time it just, just die. There's a scene in the film where you're holding up some, just the dead tissue, right, of the, of the coral, and it's, uh, it's pretty, very sad to, very sad to see. Um, and this has been, this has been increasing in rate, right? We were seeing these events more and more. Yeah, absolutely. So... The first global mass bleaching event in the sense that reefs across the world were impacted was in 1998. Um, that bleaching event in particular was exacerbated or um, ha has roots inside of an El Nino event. So 
an El Nino event essentially means that our planet has warmer water moving towards the Americas, and that has consequences for the ocean as well as us as people who live terrestrially um, around the world. For cold, it usually means that it's a year in which they're going to be put into temperatures that are, are much higher than what they're used to. Um, 98 is the first big one that we see. And then we follow that up in 2010 with a fairly large El Nino event that caused some mass leaking around the world. And then in 2014 through 2017, we have a much, much larger scale event. In large case, again, due to one of the largest El Ninos um, ever recorded alongside 98. But those are the three big ones. You can see that in the, in the historical record of coal that there is no bleaching in the past at least to a thousand years or so. And we know that because we can actually take a core of a coral reef, much like we can a tree, and we can see the rings on the inside that grow with the coral, and we can actually determine the, um, the representation of a bleaching event. And we don't see that until um, 98, in most cases, and at its earliest, about 1982. So this entire phenomenon in which we've already lost about 50% of the coral reefs on the planet is something that's really only taken a hold on this ecosystem since the 80s and, and really since the late 90s. So it's beginning to become a more frequent um, occurrence. And the big fear now is that these amazing creatures that are really great at reproducing and can actually rejuvenate an ecosystem quite quickly are simply not getting the chance because they're seeing these global temperatures on a much more regular basis than they were, say, 30 years ago or even 100 years ago. So the temperatures continue to increase in our oceans, and therefore we're beginning to see more and more um, dangerous bleaching events as well as higher mortality rates on these reefs. Now, some people might say this is addressed in the film that, uh, well, it's, you know, it's not feeling that much hotter, uh, you know, um, on on land. But the the problem is the film points out the uh, the the rising temperatures they're affecting the oceans disproportionately, right? One one fact in the film, scientists say that uh, if the heat did not go into the ocean, absorbed by the oceans, uh, average air temperature uh, on the surface of the Earth would be about 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, absolutely. So the ocean's this amazing thing, and our planet as a whole is just this giant system where everything's interconnected. So we as people, we, we think about our atmosphere, and we think about the weather outside today. What we don't necessarily connect is that the atmosphere and the ocean are playing a constant game of um, finding equilibrium with each other. And the ocean is 70% of the surface of this planet. The majority of the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere, for instance, is actually being absorbed by the ocean. It's finding equilibrium with our atmosphere. And the changes that occur in our oceans, such as acidification and the warming of areas like coral reefs and warming of areas even beyond the coral reefs, um, kind of get the the back burner in our minds because they're much more drawn out processes. They don't necessarily show their face immediately. It takes quite a while for that ocean to, um, you know, work its way into a position where the consequences can actually be seen and measured. Um, so, so what we're seeing now is actually the consequence of, you know, the past hundred years or so, and it's going to continue to change as long as we don't hold our end of the bargain, so to speak. Um, however, the ocean is, um, is has this amazing capacity to to buffer itself and to give us a chance. So we live in a, a very interesting time where we do have the, the data now and we can have the, the visual aid of, you know, perhaps what we did with Chasing Coral to visualize what these events may look like. Um, and we can work as, as people to do our very best with the understanding that the ocean has essentially bought us a little bit of time. Um, not a whole lot, but we do have an opportunity to make some changes in order to 
hopefully um, give those corals a chance and slow down the change that we're seeing in our oceans. If you just joined us, we're talking with Zach Rago. He is featured prominently in the film Chasing Coral. You can uh, see that on Netflix. And uh, Chasing Coral is um, trying to discover why coral are vanishing at an unprecedented rate, what it means. I want to uh, hear another sound clip from the film. This is number three. Uh, this is various scientists talking about the high stakes. Uh, you, you know, you might think, I'm in Utah. What, uh, <laughs> what's the spring coral uh, going to do to me? Of course, we know things are interconnected, and uh, these scientists are going to underline this uh, for us. Uh, here's the uh, sound clip from the film Chasing Coral. When coral bleaches and dies, you're losing the coral animal. And that's a shame because it's a beautiful thing. But a coral is a fundamental part of a huge ecosystem. It is, in a way, just like the trees in a forest. If coral reefs are lost, we're affecting the life of a quarter of the ocean. The little fish disappear, the big fish disappear, and then you can look at humans as one of the big fish. It's easy to think about the fate of an individual species. But what is a little harder to explain, it's the beginning of an ecological collapse of the entire ecosystem. It's more than the species, the genus, the family, the order. We're talking about the possibility that entire classes of organisms would go extinct. When scientists say they're researching climate change and coral reefs, it's not about whether or not climate change is happening or not. It's really the uncertainty between knowing whether it's going to be bad or really bad. When we look at ocean temperatures, there are a range of projections of how they're going to change into the future. If you take the average, in about 25 years, all across the planet, the oceans become too warm for coral reefs to survive. That means they'll bleach every year and they won't be healthy enough to recover. Coral reefs will not be able to keep up. They will not be able to adapt. And we will see the eradication of an entire ecosystem in our lifespan. That is a very gloomy statement, but unfortunately it is true. Everything on our planet is connected what we're doing is pulling out the card called coral reefs from this house of cards. And the real fear is that we'll take out enough of those cards where the whole thing will just simply collapse. If we can't save this ecosystem, are we going to have the courage to save the next ecosystem down the line? Do we need forests? Do we need trees? Do we need reefs? Or can we just sort of live in the ashes of all of that? That's a scene from um, Chasing Coral, the new uh, documentary film. You can find that on Netflix. We have uh, one of the people featured in the film, um, Zach Rago. The Zach Rago, uh, that's... It's designed to be impactful, a lineup of scientists <laughs> talking about doomsday, which is one possible scenario. Uh, I don't know, you, you come out of this experience, what, depressed, hopeful, what, uh, when you look to the future? Yeah, so uh, there's certainly room for optimism, um, and, and I think I have a couple of reasons for that. Um, however, I, I do want to mention that... Um, so I, I do agree that there um, there is a great deal of doom and gloom over the top of coral reefs at the moment. It's it's quite difficult to be overly optimistic about coral reefs when you simply put them in a corner and look at them alone. Um, but that being said, um, they are incredible ecosystems, and um, as you mentioned at the beginning of this talk, that. You know, by 2050, the, the odds are we will lose about 90% of the corals on the planet. However, that, that 10% is, is unbelievably important, and it comes down to 
how corals reproduce. And, and it's quite fascinating because corals do something um, truly amazing. Um, they, they have what's called spawning events. So um, in, in the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, for the, on the first full moon in November, every single coral on the Great Barrier Reef will actually throw its gametes, its, its eggs and sperm, into the water column. And those gametes can now flow in, in the currents to really anywhere in the world or wherever those um, currents are going to take them. And, and therefore, they, they act as their own seed banks, essentially. Um, even if we lose 90%, that 10% has the capacity over many, many years to be able to replenish areas around it and to be able to actively be the seed banks of the future for this ecosystem, given that they may turn out a little bit different than what we think about right now. Um, if we do hold our end of the bargain, they can do it. Um, and they're amazingly effective at doing it. Um, I think that that more than anything is what gives me hope for coral reefs in particular. When it comes to um, this larger fight of environmental issues that are happening in nearly every ecosystem on the planet in today's world, I think where my optimism lies is actually in the current feel of politics in today's world. Um, over, over the past two years or a year and a half, the amount of activism and, and people raising their voices to share their own opinions and, and become involved with standing up in what they believe in, is at an all-time high in this country. And it's something that we haven't had for a great while. Um, so between the two of those things and the amazing science that's going on um, to, start, to try and find the answers to some of the problems that we face today, um, I do have optimism left. And um, I think also at the core of that is the next generation. Our youth are incredibly smart. Um, kids are not given enough credit. They, they're amazing minds, and, and they're unjaded minds. It's, um, it's almost um, like the Jane Goodall story, right? She was able to change the world in the way that we think about primates. With no legitimate scientific training whatsoever, she, um, she was able to take a vision um, that was completely novel and, and really be able to learn as much as she could about something and, and impact the world in a, a massive way. In the same way, I, I think that kids nowadays are understanding that they're getting a, um, a terrible end of the stick. And we're seeing so much activism and desire from this generation to be a participant and, and get involved in any way that they can because they know that something that is meaningful to them is at risk here. Um, I think between all three of those things, the reproduction of corals, our current political climate, and the unbelievable passion and excitement coming from our youth to be a bigger participant than maybe previous generations, those give me a great deal of hope that we can solve things. Um, are we going to lose coral reefs? We're going to lose a great deal of them, absolutely. Um, but I do think that we are in that kind of crossover period where really amazing things are on our horizon and, and we may have the capacity to, um, to pull it off and ensure the longevity of not only ourselves, but... Um, all of the wonderful things that fill us with wonder and joy that inhabit this planet amongst us. Um, I really do have optimism there. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Zach Rago, who is featured in the film Chasing Coral. You can find it on Netflix. I want to ask about, um, there. it's a fascinating story how this film came about. Uh, Richard Beaver's an advertising guy, right? And... Uh, and he uh, saw the film Chasing Ice, which uh, is a very impactful film, where they did uh, time-lapse photography on glaciers. And the receding, you, could, you could actually see the, the glaciers receding, the effect of uh, global warming. And so the similar idea for coral and uh, Zach Rago involved here. And um, uh, Richard Beaver said, if, you know, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And perhaps if people see it, then they'll take action. I want to talk about that and uh, much more following this break. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Summer Piano Festival presenting pianist Jason Hardink performing Liszt's Transcendental Etudes Tuesday, July 17th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Tickets not required. Details at music.usu.edu slash frystreetcmf. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah Public Radio. If you enjoy tuning into my program Sunday nights, then come join me at UPR's upcoming events, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue on July 29th. We'll listen to music from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band with Jim Schaub and Doug Jones, performed outside of the beautiful vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. I'd love to meet you and talk blues and jazz over some barbecue food and live music. To get your tickets, just go to upr.org. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Coral reefs around the world are vanishing at an unprecedented rate. We've lost 50% of the world's coral in the last 30 years. A new documentary film is out called Chasing Coral. You can find that on Netflix. We're talking with Zach Rago, underwater photographer, um, and uh, he uh, loves coral and uh, is prominently featured in uh, Chasing Coral. We have him uh, for another uh, about uh, 15 minutes of conversation. You can join this conversation if you'd like. We'd love to get your question or comment. Uh, to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And uh, to open this segment, let's uh, hear our uh, remaining uh, sound clip from the film. That's clip number one. This is uh, the opening couple of minutes of, uh, of the, the film. I've always been drawn to the magic of the ocean. It feels like time slows down. Most people stare up into space with wonder. Yet we have this almost alien world on our own planet, just teeming with life. But it's a world most people never explore. Richard Beavers is documenting the ocean's reefs the same way Google maps out streets. Snapping a 360-degree picture every three seconds. This is the 21st country that we've done as part of a, a global survey of coral reefs. Hidden below the surface of the world's oceans, spectacular gardens of coral. Reefs are where much of the seafood we eat begins life. Reefs are a source of food and income for over 500 million people. It's really about trying to communicate the science as much as doing the science itself. To take people on a journey. An incredible journey under the sea, which could be the closest many of us come to seeing an exotic underwater site. Giving anyone with internet access the chance to go on a virtual dive at many of the survey sites. That's the opening of Chasing Coral, a new film out. It's, you can see it on Netflix. And we have with us one of the uh, prominent voices featured in the film, uh, Zach Rago. So Zach Rago, uh, Richard Beavers there, says he loves the oceans, but for many people it's, uh, it's, it's an alien world almost. Uh, we, most of us don't go, probably won't get there. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell us uh, a little bit about it. You, For example, as part of this film, you got to go to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, goal of yours, you got to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think first and foremost, he's um, very right that it's out of sight and out of mind for many people, simply because less than 1% of people 
have an opportunity to go scuba diving. Um, uh, uh, Zach, uh, Zach, you're uh, actually, you're cutting out uh, a little bit. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, maybe put the mouthpiece closer to your mouth or something. Yep, sorry about no, that. Okay, thank you. Um, but uh, very few people have an opportunity to explore the ocean, even in a way that I have. And there are many other scientists and, and folks out there that have spent a great deal more time um, th- than I have. But even for me, um, and I think that most of the people that worked on the film would agree, um, no matter how many times I've been on a reef, it never gets less alien. Um, it is truly a world that seems like it popped off the screen from James Cameron's Avatar. Um, it's so unusual, and the life that is there is just so remarkably different than what we are used to in a terrestrial mindset um, that, that it really is a special place. And, and I think it's hard for anyone to experience that and not get some sense of awe. Um, but as a huge part of the film was understanding that there is a very good reason that people don't necessarily focus or understand the issues that are happening in a marine environment in the same sense that they would something like deforestation or, um, or the plight of elephants and rhinos or some of these other environmental conversations that tend to get the mainstream quite often, um, that you have to be able to share that, that alien world and the fascinating things that live there with people in a, in a tangible and digestible way. And hopefully um, through things like time lapse, um, that becomes possible because so much of life lives life in the slow end. Um, and until you can manipulate that for people and, and be able to give them access to the amazing physiology and movements of something as basic as a coral, um, it's quite difficult to care for them or, or feel connected to this place that is quite elusive to most. We've uh, had an email come in. You can email us as well. Love to get your question or comment uh, for Zach Rago. Uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. This is Riley, and this fits uh, perfectly into the flow of the conversation. Thanks, Riley. Riley says, I'm listening to the segment on saving coral. My question is, as an individual living in a community which, for the most part, does not believe in global warming and even opposes the idea of it, how should I get involved? How can I be the most help? Yeah, that's a great question, Riley. Um, so, hey, I'm, I myself grew up on an inland community. Um, I don't have direct access to the coral reefs here in Denver, Colorado. Um, but I think most importantly, what I do have is I have people in my life that care about me. And there are people in your life that care about you. And because you believe in something and, and may have the, the knowledge to... Um, you know, have a conversation about climate change and have a conversation about how can my community move forward in the most sustainable way that's going to benefit all of us, um, then that allows you to actually have a big impact. It, it allows you to not feel like you're just a drop in the ocean because everybody around you is going to be impacted by what you do and what you believe in, which is really fascinating. Um, you know, the other thing is I, I've been lucky enough to spend some time in Utah and uh, particularly through Sundance and have showed the film there a few times. There are some incredible organizations in your neck of the woods that are doing really amazing work, including a few that are um, actually particularly working on coral restoration problems. Um, so I think the biggest thing is have conversations and and work with the people around you that you're closest to and always remember that um you know find common ground first in order to give facts a chance um nobody wants to be told what to do and for the most part data and statistics don't usually mean a whole lot to people um we have to be very personable and we have to be very open and you know, quite frankly, most of the time, some of those other perspectives are rooted in reality. And um, we have to, you know, find understanding in all of the different variables that go into these things, both economically, 
um, socially, but most importantly, that we are being good to each other and having a nice conversation about what we can do to better ourselves rather than to point fingers. And um, I think that that's extremely important. Um, and, and lastly, I would I would definitely implore you to um, get involved with local organizations, right? Um, I certainly can't do everything on my own. So even where I see the film nowadays is it's an asset to all the amazing people doing amazing work. Um, and there are organizations who have their niche and are um, – are fighting very particular battles. So find what interests you and enable yourself to nestle yourself into a group, an organization, um, and do your best to be a participant amongst that. I think that's what we need more than anything is um, people participating on a daily basis to try and be the best that they possibly can. Thanks for that, Riley, and uh, we'd love to get your question or comment as well. Uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have Zach Rago uh, from the film Chasing Coral uh, with us for another uh, about seven minutes. Zach Rago, there was a scene in the film really impacted me, uh, several scenes where it's obvious that you're going down, you're seeing this bleaching, it's really affecting you personally. Um, and then you're about to give a presentation with Richard Beavers. I'm not sure what the audience, audience may be scientists. Um, and you, yeah. a, you ask him, um, is it okay to say how this is affecting me? And Richard Beavers says, yes, that's a positive. That's good. Just don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's, um, almost as funny looking back on it now, um, because I actually think that that conversation in particular between Richard and I um, is almost weirdly representative of science and the way that we talk about the people in science. Um, science is objective in nature. It, it has to be. That's, that's the job, is to find things out about the world um, and, and to tell the truth and to support yourself with data and experiments. What we're not usually allowed to do is talk about what's personal to us. Um, in order to be a good scientist, you have to be absolutely infatuated with your subject matter. And where that becomes difficult is people that work on coral reefs are having to go through this time period over the past handful of years in which the thing that they've always been passionate about and have given their entire career to um, is now being wiped off the planet extremely quickly. And there's still a sense of, can I share the emotional toll that's happening to me? Or does that take away from my objective science? And that's a really hard balance to find. Um, for me, I'm lucky because... Though I would probably refer to myself as a scientist, I am not a tenured professor. I don't actively do research at an institution at the moment. It's, um, it's a lot easier for me to be emotional about it because I don't have the, the ties and the pressure on me to hold myself to a particular standard of science. And so it's fascinating to the pain that can be in many of these researchers because they literally are losing something that is a piece of them. Um, and, and that's really tough to deal with. Um, you know, but for me in the film, and, and anyone that's seen it, it certainly sees that I'm an emotional guy and, and that this experience was certainly transformative for me. Um, I think at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade any of the hardships or frustrations or anger or sadness um, for anything. Because in the back of my mind, I knew all along that, you know, nobody has visualized this before and documented it in the way that we are. And this is my opportunity to um, lend a hand and more importantly, lend a voice to a place that means so much to me on a personal level. Um if I can share that with the world and create something that you know, kind of bridges this gap between us and this ecosystem, um, then, then that's enough for me. And, 
and I think that we did a pretty good job in, in doing that. Um, so beyond all of the frustration that, that may exist, I think that all of us that were involved with the film and, and were emotional about it um, are, are really grateful that we had the opportunity to share this story in a powerful way. Just about a minute left. Uh, there's another scene I just want to mention. I won't have time to comment on it much, but it seems like a metaphor. At one point, I think this is Richard Beaver's, um, usually would go out on, on, on a boat kind of isolated and dive and do the photography. In this particular place, they were diving off of a floating restaurant. Um, and, <laughs> and so people are eating and dancing and, <laughs> and having a good time, oblivious to the fact that these uh, people are diving off and, and documenting a a big ecological uh, event that seemed very metaphorical to me. I don't know if it struck you that way. I, I certainly agree. And I think it's metaphorical in quite a few different ways, but for me, um, it immediately comes off um, and represents the point that we talked about previously that, um, you know, this world is truly out of sight and out of mind. It could be right under your feet and, and you may not know. And so you can't blame people for it. Um, but it's hard to get past the fact that, um, you know, people are going to continue on with their lives. And, you know, that's okay. But um, the fact that they can go on Netflix and be able to gain a little bit of understanding about this um, this consequence and this phenomenon, um, that that's pretty fascinating to me. And um, I think that's pretty cool. I do always joke with them that they're lucky they didn't send me out to New <laughs> Caledonia because I probably wouldn't have handled that as eloquently as Richard did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might have had a conversation with the people there. Uh, well, maybe that'll be in the sequel. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, Zach Rago, uh, featured prominently in the film uh, Chasing Coral. You can find it on Netflix. Uh, well worth uh, the view. Uh, and uh, Zach Rago, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Uh, really appreciate it, Tom, and I hope you guys have a lovely day. Okay, you too. Um, hope you join me tomorrow. I'll be talking with uh, Cash Valley, a native son and uh, prominent uh, American theoretical physicist, Nobel laureate Kip Thorne. He's coming for an event later in the week uh, back to Logan, and uh, we'll talk with him on the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Is Utah Public Radio a road trip staple for your family? Do you listen while running errands around town or tune into your favorite program while cleaning? The UPR staff is sharing where we listen to public radio on our social media accounts, and we want you to join us. Share your favorite listening locations with us via email or on social media using the hashtag WhereIListenUPR. We can't wait to hear from you. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.